Hello and welcome. You're listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast exploring the latest thinking and key issues for leaders and those aspiring to lead. I'm Randall Peterson. I'm a professor in the Organizational Behavior Group and the director of the Leadership Institute at London Business School. And with me today, I have my colleague, Linda Groton. We've worked together for many years. I have a deep respect for her expertise in the area of the future of leadership and the future of work. But I think there's still a lot I need to learn from you, Linda, here. So uh, we've got a whole bunch of questions for you. But how about you take just a moment to perhaps introduce yourself? Well, thank you, Randall. And thank you so much to... uh the invitation to the podcast. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be talking to you. And Randall, as you said, it's really nice. We've known each other for years, but we've good to sit down with this cup of coffee and, and, and talk about leadership in the future world. Well, it's been my topic now for many years, as you know. Uh, I've been directing the Future of Work Consortium that brings companies uh, all around the world together. I run a program at London Business School on human resource strategy. And of course, I've written, I've written 10 books. I understand that that's now sold more than a million copies, and they've been translated into 20 languages. And I'm currently the co-chair of the World Economic Forum on skills and jobs. So very much part of the whole conversation that's happening today, uh, Randall. Great. So we look forward to this. I'm going to start with our first question, which was, of course, the one on everyone's mind for anybody who thinks about the future of work, and that is the big change that happened about a year ago. I was going to say millions of us were thrust into remote working, but it may even be billions of us <laughs> were thrust into remote working kind of overnight. So one year on, what do you think has really changed in the way we work? Well, it has been extraordinary, hasn't it, Rand? I mean, March the 14th. 2020, I kept a diary. I opened a diary on that day, honestly expecting I'd probably never get through further than volume one. I don't think we ever did. Well, I'm now, let me just look at it now, I'm now on volume nine. And actually, it's been an astounding transformation. I've been writing about how I think work should change for decades. But frankly, as you know, nothing much has changed. But now, we have this extraordinary event which has affected every single person. It's affected leaders, managers, frontline workers, our children, our families, our communities, and it will make a profound impact on how we work. No question about that. I mean, even, I don't know if you remember, Randall, but on the, I think by the end of March, I did a webinar for London Business School on uh, the future of work. And then at that stage, and this was only March of 2020, I asked participants, we had about 4,000 people on the line, well, how are you feeling right now? Well, guess how many of them said, I want to go back to how it was. Even then, it was a very, very small number. And of course, what it's really done is to show organizations just what they're capable of. I've just written a Harvard Business Review article, which will be out in May 2021, about hybrid work. And the case that I write about is Fujitsu. Fujitsu, you know, traditional Japanese company, bureaucratic, hierarchical leadership. I'd been going out to Japan for years saying, why not become less hierarchical? No, 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 this is how it's done. Everybody's got to be sitting in the office. They moved, wait for this, 80,000 people 
from officers right around Tokyo to their home in one week. And then, of course, leaders suddenly realized that, you know, they were the same as everybody else. You know, you could see your leader standing, sitting in his or her office, you know, or at home with the books, with the kids, with the children. So it's just been absolutely profound, Randall. And I think when we look back to this, we will see it as a break, a significant break between the past and the future. Yes, and um, I am reminded of that, the joke that's been going around about who really got your IT strategy going. You know, was it your IT director, your CEO, or was it COVID? And we all know that COVID really forced a lot of what was going to happen anyway to much earlier. But when we when were not forced to work only at home, and we can go back to the way it was, which we don't want to, but what's really going to stick versus what's going to be maybe things that will change back to the way they were? Well, I think that's such a good question, Randall. And, you know, it seems to me that this hybrid way of working, where you have much more flexibility around the place that you work, you know, do you work at the in the office? Do you work at home? But also the time that you work, you know, will you be synchronized? So you work in the same time zone as your other colleagues, or will you be asynchronized? And I think people are realizing, and certainly this is what I've said in the writing that I've been doing since COVID, is that you have to ask yourself, what is it that this job's about? And therefore, what are the circumstances that I can be at my highest performance? And I think, Randall, as you've seen, and certainly as I've seen, people who do focused work like you and I do, where we're sitting writing and thinking, are absolutely delighted to be at home. But for those people for whom cooperation and working in teams and being innovative and serendipity is absolutely crucial, then that's homeworking isn't going to work for them all the time. Now, I'm handing over back to you, Randall, because you are the preeminent person on Teams. So I'd be fascinated to hear what you are thinking about how a team's going to, to carry on working, do you think? Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Well, thank you for that. You know, there are a lot of things, like when we used to schedule meetings, we automatically assumed it was an in-person meeting. I think that's probably changed forever. Is it going to be on Zoom or is it going to be in person? And, you know, that change will change the way we work, certainly change the way the teams operate. Routine things can be done that way. But then think about what are the kind of things where you still want to be in the room? And there are times when you really need to collaborate, see each other, feel the emotion. Because one of the big troubles I'm hearing from a lot of executives right now is, I don't actually know how burned out my people are. I have a sense that they're really burned out, but I don't know how much so because I don't actually, you know, what I see is the stylized image on the screen and I don't, I don't know all the the ways they're interacting and then the, and the look on their face in quite the same way. So how do I identify people who might need extra support right now? I think that's such a good point around and such a good point for leaders really, because in a way, one thing we said about the pandemic is well leaders can see into everybody's home they can see you all the time they can watch you and they can talk to you isn't that wonderful and in many ways it was but I agree with you that one of the issues is they're seeing their employees or their team members their colleagues their zoom identity and their zoom identity is not necessarily the identity you know that that person has on a daily basis so I I agree with you that although we feel as if we've got closer to people. Actually, for the leader, 
they're only seeing a very small part of what that person is experiencing in a way that if they saw them in an office for longer, they'd get a much clearer sense. And there's no question that people are burnt out, my goodness, and leaders, by the way. I, I've been following a, a number of leaders, as I know you have, Randall, since the beginning. And goodness me, that's a hard job at the moment, isn't it? Without any of that positive feedback that's so exhilarating when you're a leader. Absolutely, absolutely right. I, you know, I see the same thing that you see, where leaders are trying not to show their exhaustion. It's been a really tough ride. We have had two supposedly once-in-a-century events nearly back-to-back. Not quite. There's a decade in between them, but still, you know, it's been a, it's been a rough decade for leaders generally. And they were stretched. They started to relax and then got hit again. And there's a kind of profound way in which many leaders are tired and exhausted right now that we haven't seen for a long time, I think. And what will that mean? I don't know. Well, I think that's such a good point, Randall. And, you know, one of the things I think it means is about resilience. You know, we ask leaders to think about the mental health of their employees and their workforce, but actually their own health, their own resilience is is really important. And I've heard quite a lot of leaders be quite open, really, about how they're feeling so that they acknowledge their own feelings and also by doing so empathize with others' feelings. I talked to a leader uh, last week, um, Randall, of a very large company. She had four boys under the age of 15 at home. She was homeschooling. I, I just can't even imagine what her life was like. And yet she, there she was doing all the things that leaders do. And now she acknowledged that in the conversation. She said, look, it's tricky at the moment because both my partner and I have full-time jobs and we've got four kids at home. She made a joke of it. She said, you know, we're paying four, four times school fees and, of course, they're all sitting at home with us. And that was quite light-hearted. But actually what she was signalling was this is tough. And I do think that that signalling is going to be really, really crucial. As we think about the the organization of the future, where there were going to be more working from home, I think we probably all can see that. Somebody might have debated it before all this started, but I think it'd be hard to argue with it now. How do we accommodate an organization where that's going to be a kind of permanent feature? People more working from home, we don't see them in the same way we did. And what is that going to look like? Yeah. You know, again, that's the that's the question, isn't it, that everyone's facing right now, because work isn't going to be the same again. And people aren't going to want to rush back to their offices, uh, although I think the idea that knowledge workers will want to stay permanently home, I, I don't see any evidence of that. I think people will want to get to the office. So what does it mean for leaders? Well, you know, I would say a couple of things about that. One is. I think that the question of purpose and values really comes to the fore here. When you've got a complex system, which is what we're now developing, people are going to look to the leader for some sort of continuity, some sort of sense of what, what is it? What, what is bringing us together? What is that connectivity? Because we're not seeing each other and bumping each other into each other in the office all the time. And so I think that their capacity to remind people of the purpose and to live the purpose and to live the values is going to be really important. The second thing I would say 
is about the design of work. I think that we're going to see the next phase really after the pandemic will be a real focus on the design of work because you know one thing that's happened with the pandemic is that it's increased levels of automation. In fact we were meeting leaders from 30 companies today to talk about that and there's no question that this will accelerate digitalization and automation. And so the design of work, why is it that the work is designed as it is? I think that's something that leaders are really thinking about. This morning, we did a, a, a mentee, you know, where you ask people, what do you think's the big training skill at the moment? And I was pretty surprised, actually, to see, and this was companies all over the world, that the number one skill that they wanted to train for was design thinking. And it was an acknowledgement that we have to redesign the way we work and leaders have to be open to other possibilities. That comes back to Herminia Ibarra, our other great friend, her view about leaders having diverse networks and being able to see other ways of doing things. So I think that's going to be crucial. And the third point I'd make, uh, Randall, is really about how you think about people's performance. I mean, I know that you and I for years have been saying, you know, let's move away from old-fashioned performance management systems, but it's been hard for leaders to do that. I think what we're seeing now is a realization that it's not about checking up. It's about checking in, checking in with people, not checking up with them. And I think that's going to be a very interesting conversation over the next couple of months. I was talking to a leader from one of the Japanese companies a couple of weeks ago about home working. He said, well, the really great thing is that we now can measure how many strikes people make on their computer. I mean, even knowledge workers. And I said, you know, if you start doing that, that's, you know, that's a path that I would not recommend you go down. And that's the checking up path. And I think that what we need to encourage leaders to do and what leaders have to think about is how they build cultures of trust. So they trust people wherever they are to be doing the best that they can and not to design performance management systems on the assumption that everyone's a slacker and that they're slacking at home. Great points, Linda. As you were speaking there, I was reminded of, of, of Taylorism going way back a century ago, prescribing people's every move and assuming that was going to result in some incredibly efficient process where people were going to act just like machines. Measuring keystrokes does seem to me come off to me in exactly that same way. Yikes. No. Run away from the data. <laughs> yeah, that, that, well, those kind of data, you know, uh, <laughs> are, the, as you say, the wrong kind. You know, there was a time in which we all talked about more data, more data, more data, need to get data. But I think the real challenge is what data, what's actually useful, what's going to have the impact we want it to have here. And as we look to these new ways of working and these new types of organizations, give us some help here on what are the kinds of things that they should be, how should they check in with people, not just check up on them. Well, I think it comes back a little bit to the point I made about the design of work. I think that we're only at the beginning of redesigning work. I was in a conference this morning with a guy called Neil Lawrence, who's the professor of computing at Cambridge, uh, the DeepMind professor. 
And he made what I thought, Randall, was a wonderful point. He said, and he's a computer geek, he's not, he's not an OD person like you and I, he said, you realize that work has been completely designed around machines. Machines basically told us how they wanted to work and we had to fit in with them. And he said, isn't it time that we designed work for humans and machines fit in, into us? And I thought, wow, that's a really important insight that we in our field need to really think hard about. And as you said, you know, a fundamental question there is, how do we manage people? How do we trust people? And I, my current view is that, frankly, and I'm talking more about management here, Randall, than I'm about leadership, but let me just m mention this in a way, because this is, is in a sense where the performance issues are thought about. In a way, when people came into the office every day between nine and five, you didn't really need to be a manager. You know, humans are very good at self-managing. I mean, you've been saying this for years. I mean, they're brilliant at managing themselves. And if you put them all together, they'll just sort of all work out a hierarchy and who should speak to who and so on and so forth. You hardly needed a manager, which is part of the reason why we said, why bother having managers? But actually, when you think that you might have a team of, let's say, 100 people uh, scattered around. Some of them are working from home. Some of them are in the office. Some of them are working asynchronously. Some of them are working synchronously. You need a level of design that is significantly greater than you ever had before, i.e. you've got to ask yourself, what is it these people are doing? And what is the context that I can shape for them that helps them to become, in Dan, our colleagues Dan Cable's world, the very best that they can be? And I think that's going to be a really important question. So that rather than looking at the output, although of course that's important, you also ask yourself, what would be the context that would help people really become the very best they can be? And my view on it right now is that the big leadership agenda is upskilling and reskilling. You know, as we move the way of working to become more digital, to work from home more, to be in virtual teams, and you know better than anyone how difficult those are to manage, we've really got to help people get better at managing a virtual team, for example. I mean, that's not... When I started to think about that, I, I couldn't just work it out myself. I had to go to the literature and see, well, well, how do you do this stuff? And that's the sort of level of specificity we need now. As you were talking, I started to wonder about helping people to be the best they can be and to design jobs around people rather than machines, which we've been doing for about nearly 200 years. It's been the other way around. I started thinking about, okay, so if we think about the pandemic and the all the changes that have happened here, what are the positive sides? We've talked a lot about a lot of the negative sides of, of this transition, actually. We've talked a little bit, but I'd, I'd like to talk a bit more about what are the good things about these changes that have happened that we think are going to be part of that solution on the future of work. Yeah, I think there have been real positives. And at the moment, of course, in our third lockdown, I think Randall and I, would, we were just saying before, we're both feeling the fatigue of, of a third UK lockdown. But let me make a couple of points about what's going to be some of the positive. Look, I think the first is about family and community. You know, I've been going on in every one of my books about how important communities and neighbourhoods and families are. And, and I think, again, because work was designed around 
around machines and machines don't have families and communities, then we didn't really think that. And I do think that what's really come home to many people during the pandemic is that part of their resilience is about their family and their community and their neighborhood. So I, I would say that's the first. The second is, and I remember somebody from Vodafone saying this to me within three weeks, actually, of the pandemic. I was talking to her about, well, how is it? She said, she said the most astounding thing was that we just stopped doing lots of things. You know, we stopped saying, well, hang on, why, why are we having those meetings? And so I think we did strip out a lot of bureaucracy. Now, you know, you and I are know enough about organizational theory to know that that's all probably going to start creeping back in again. But there has been a really significant stripping out. And I would say the third one, and this again comes from the same upbeat uh, senior executive from Vodafone, when she said, we found all sorts of new talent. And I think that's been really exciting as well, that, that when you get into a situation where people have got to move incredibly quickly in an incredibly agile way, then suddenly you see people emerge that you hadn't really given any responsibility to before. So I think there's all sorts of positives. And in fact, my own view is that it will be a positive experience if we can keep hold of those positives. And I think it also was great for leaders because they started to build a narrative. We haven't spoken about that yet, Randall, but I did want to say something about the leader's narrative. And We've been surveying people from the very beginning about, you know, what do you want from your leader? And they they know that a leader can't say to them, this is how it's going to be. You know, nobody can say that in the whole world. But they do want a leader who gives them a sort of positive view of where the organization goes, what it believes in, what the values are, and the general sense of direction. And I think, and at the same time, to acknowledge that they don't know all the answers. Nobody knows all the answers and to be actively listening. So one of the things we've been doing, which has been sort of fascinating, is to work with leaders to connect them with up to, in fact, we're just about to do a jam for 300,000 people, where the leader actually is in a conversation with large numbers of people. And, And of course, the technology allows us to do that. And we've become much more technologically literate. So I think how they listen and how they build a narrative, a story of the future, is just so important right now. One other one I thought, as you were, I remembered as you were talking, and that is the work of our colleague, Selin Kassever, about the restorative power of nature, and how many people have rediscovered the importance of going out for that walk in the park and getting outside, which we oftentimes had as part of our, perhaps our commute to work, and we didn't think about it, And now that we have to seek it out, we see it in a a very different way. And for me, that's I think that's a very positive outcome as well. Yeah, I I totally agree. It's quite interesting. We looked at some some research which asks when you didn't do your two hour commute, what did you do with it? And what we found in general, and others have found the same, is that most people assign one hour to working longer, which is part of the reason why in some companies productivity has gone up. But they give one hour often to walking around. I mean, before you and I spoke, I did my usual six-kilometer walk around Primrose Hill. And I think the more that leaders role model that, the better. And, And you do see leaders who will say, I've just been for a walk, or I need an hour and a half now because I need to get out and to breathe and to be in nature. And of course, you know, as people decide they don't need to be in the office so much, 
then they're more likely to live in the countryside. And again, I think that's a good thing. You know, I've been advising, I was advising Prime Minister Abe in terms of the aging population in Japan, the aging population. One of the real challenges that we have in Japan is this huge focus on Tokyo, which means that everybody has these terrible commutes and all the beautiful rural areas of Japan are just full of old people. Not that there's anything wrong with an old person, uh, Randall, as you know, but nevertheless, it's full of people in their 80s, 70s and 80s. And actually what's really coming out of the pandemic for Japan is people are getting back into the countryside again because they don't have to work in Tokyo every day. They're saying, well, why don't we live in one of these wonderful other neighborhoods, cities, towns, of which there are many in Japan? Let's also get back to some of the other work, I think, implications here. What, what are the implications on things like networking and mentorship, for example? Well, I think that's the big question, actually, both and both of those points, networking and mentorship. So one of the things that companies are saying about the pandemic is, you know, it's great for people like me and you who are well established in their career, who have enough resources to have their own study in their own house. But what about younger people who aren't established, who don't have those sorts of networks. And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing some companies saying that once the pandemic is over, we want young people to be in the office for the first part of their life with us so they get an opportunity to meet each other. Now, of course, if it's just young people and nobody else, that's not going to work either. But I do think that the unanswered challenge and, and I can't really answer it for you but it is the challenge which is if you move into a hybrid way of working what does it mean for mentoring and what does it mean for networks I think that's the question actually Randall I totally hear what you're saying I think that it's a great point I hadn't thought about it but of course as you say as a senior established person I've got a great network and I draw on it every day even though I'm not leaving the house if you don't have it, it's really hard to build it in today's world, and we need to we need to do something about that. So, what else do you think still needs changing in our work lives, whether through flexible working or maybe to improve them and to improve our lives just more generally? Well, I think one of the issues I've had about the pandemic is that people have really naturally gone to flexibility around place, uh, and actually. When people started talking about the impact of pandemic at the very beginning, they saw it as homework. Are you in the office or are you at home? I think that's really to miss a big opportunity to actually also think about time. Because one of the challenges that we face with our technology robot shaped way of working is that time has become a real problem. I mean, Randall, how many times when you teach or when I teach, do we hear people say, oh my goodness, I can't switch my email off. I have to work right through the evenings. I'm taking my work everywhere I go. I think that's a real challenge. And it seems to me that if we're going to redesign place, why don't we have a go at time in the same time? And I think it's a great kind of challenge for us to uh, maybe conclude our conversation here. Thank you so much. It's been a fantastic conversation and a real pleasure to be, to be talking with you and actually debating some of the big questions that are going to be coming up in the, in the coming months. Well, thank you, Linda. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always. 
having a, a great conversation with you and thinking about these really important issues. So you've been listening to the Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast. Just search London Business School in your podcasting app of choice. To receive a curated selection of articles, podcasts, and films direct into your inbox each fortnight, tap the link in the show notes. Thank you.